degrees. So um, I think in the last week it's turned into legitimate fear, um, preaching three weeks. When we did the roster, our baby's due in about three weeks, and when we did the roster, um, everyone was trying to convince me that it would be okay. Um, and then Howard asked me at the prayer meeting, has anyone ever gone into labor while they've been preaching? And that just kind of um, struck the fear. So the fear is real. It's no longer a joke. Um, so there will be no stories about pregnancy. Um, but I remember years, when it was actually when I was a kid, I heard this interesting story and I was just quite amused by it. It's not a joke. It was just a, you know, an illustration. But this woman's she's driving on a country road and it's one of those windy country roads and she's kind of having a peaceful afternoon drive and she's in her lane she's not driving too fast and all of a sudden this car comes at high speed in her lane head on towards her and she's got to veer off the road um, just to save her life and her car and as she pulls over and she's absolutely angry the guy puts his fist out the window and shouts car and just drives past her and she's indignant how can this man who has nearly just driven her off the road now he has the audacity to open his window and call her a car and um, she's just brewing over this and starts her car again because she stalled her car and she kind of carries on around the winding road and she sees in this lane um, there's a cow that's just merrily standing in the middle of the road and he was trying to warn her and um, warn her to be careful and it's an interesting thing because it's all about perspective and sometimes when we see things from another perspective it helps us to understand what's really going on and that's why I've loved this series. I said it last week, I'll say it this week, that sometimes the Bible has got so many beautiful dimensions to it. And God also uses people as part of his story. And we can relate well to them because um, they are people just like us. And we can learn from them and we can learn about being disciples because we are called to be disciples. But something I also love about the scriptures, and just especially the time as Jesus goes to the cross, is how beautifully he takes care of his disciples' hearts. He knows what's going to be happening to him, and he knows what he's going to be going through. And in his humanity, there is great anguish. We see it to the point of him sweating blood, that this isn't just an easy thing that he's going to go through. He isn't in that moment just cruising through, being God. He's not going to save himself and take himself off the cross. He's going to willingly put himself through it. And just the pain um, and the anguish he would have gone through, yet he still decides to take care of his disciples' hearts so beautifully. And John 14, 15, 16, 17 are just beautiful as he prays for his disciples, he teaches them. He talks about not letting their hearts be troubled. Um, he speaks to them about what it's going to be like. It's actually a bit of a prophetic insight for the disciples, which I don't think, it doesn't seem to indicate that they always remember what he said, um, but he provides a lot of comfort. He speaks about that time when he will leave them. And they, they face sadness about that. There's a real grief in what he's saying. But he says, you know, unless, unless I go, um, you can't have the Holy Spirit. You, you, you actually need me to go. And he speaks about the beauty of the Holy Spirit. He speaks about what's going to be happening um, when he leaves. He, he almost puts this whole comfort and safety circle around them. He kind of embraces them with love. He gives them surety about the future. And he even speaks about what they're going to be doing with their lives afterwards. But I think at that point... Um, the, the, the Bible actually indicates if you go and you read through it, it's beautiful scriptures. The disciples are still a little bit confused about everything. And last week when we, we spoke about the road to the cross and Jesus' journey with his disciples, we see how they, they had so many confusing emotions. But the last moment before Jesus goes to the cross, before he gets arrested, is actually quite a sad one. 
because they've essentially let him down a little. And they've, you know, he asks them in, in his moment of anguish to watch and they fall asleep. He asks them again, they fall asleep. And, and that is their last moment with their master. And it's actually quite a sad ending, but it's not the ending. And, um, but, but if you at that moment put yourself in, in, in their kind of shoes, in the time from when they depart from Jesus, when they go into hiding, till when he's raised from the dead, the kind of things that as disciples they probably would have had to grapple with. And I think it's pretty safe to assume them because they were humans with human emotions. But the first thing is I just thought about separation um, from Jesus. They'd been with him, walked with him for three years. They'd seen him do this, the miraculous and the great and the mighty. And, and just that, I don't know, I mean, you guys have been on camp this weekend, if you've been on camp, and you just know that when you have a common experience of worshiping God, it's actually those goodbyes are actually a little bit harder. If you've been on mission trip together, and um, you, you've had this beautiful experience with other believers, and so when you're taken away and you put into the real world again, it's sometimes quite hard. And they would have had that. They had, they had Jesus nonstop. They had access to him. They, they shared in a beautiful meal. They had done wonderful things. They'd seen him do all these beautiful miracles. And now they're separated from him. And I'm sure there would have been a great grief with that. There was disappointment because things in it, the, the, what they're saying constantly indicates that they actually didn't really understand what was always happening. Jesus wasn't kind of going to their expectations. There would have been confusion trying to make sense of it all. How does this fit in with what he said? Um, you know, he said he was going to do this. And, and, you know, they've interpreted it through their kind of humanness when God was doing something greater and he was doing something even bigger. They would have had to deal with fear, even fear for their own lives. The question of how do we move forward with their loss? How do we, where do we go from here? Jesus didn't seem to leave very clear instructions the first time. He left them what was going to happen big picture, but, but you know, it wasn't like they had made a plan to all meet in a house or to do this or you know, go to this spot and then we're going to sneak here and then we're going to do this. And there wasn't this like, clear, clear plan. And so there's a little bit of confusion too. There was a, dealing with the loss of a dear friend and the trauma of that. I mean, they did live in brutal times, and sometimes I think we can underestimate what it would have been like to see someone crucified. Trauma is still trauma, and witnessing a friend going through that, a family member, a loved one, would have been fairly traumatic. Dealing with being a minority, I don't know if you've ever made a decision that's left you in the minority. Maybe you've been the only voice in a room full of people saying something else. It's not easy to be in the minority, and they would have known at that point, when they saw the crowds turning against Jesus, that that you know it wasn't not everyone believed what they what they believed they would have had to deal individually with with some of the the actual grief how could Judas betray Jesus they were friends that had walked around together the 12 of them and now one of them has turned on Jesus how could he have done that and then the burdens individual burdens like Simon Peter who denied Jesus when he said he would never do it and he did and then they would have heard from those that were at the cross, the woman who had witnessed it, they would have heard about it, they would have spoken about it. And so as you can see, they would have had in those few days so much to stew over. But before they can even process it, and I mean the, the kind of the, the human emotion and the heart and the brain take a while to process things, and they haven't even started to really process it, they're just kind of maybe feeling that very raw grief and pain and then next thing, Jesus has been resurrected. He's back again. And just how mind-blowing that would have been for them. And just the craziness. It would have been a roller coaster of emotions. 
And then Jesus just gives proof that he's alive again. And a beautiful thing is that he still seems to care for their hearts. He draws them in. He restores them. He, he chooses to show himself and reveal himself um, to these disciples, to these people who he loved. And something even more beautiful than that, he seems to take care of their hearts. If you think about Thomas, who had doubts, he, he, he chose to address those doubts and to deal with them. If you think about Simon Peter, who was dealing with legitimate failure of having let Jesus down, and how he goes to, to great lengths to spend time alone with Peter and to say, Peter, do you, do you love me more than these? And they go through this, this process where Jesus essentially reinstates Peter and almost puts him back in a place of peace. And just a little sidebar on that, I think it's one of the most beautiful images in Scripture. Because if you look at what had happened, Peter had said, I will never deny you. And Jesus says, you know, like, like he basically predicts that he will. And he says, you know, um, Satan wants to sift you like wheat, but, you know, I have you in the palm of my hand. And he speaks to him about it. And he talks about the fact that when you've gone through all of this, strengthen the church. And isn't it beautiful that, that, that Jesus sees us over and above our weaknesses? He actually sees our potential. He sees what we can be. And he doesn't just see us with the label failure, you know, denied me, failed, hurt me. Um, he sees what we can be, and he speaks into that too. And, and just how the very thing that you sometimes are battling with, the very sin you're grappling with, can actually be the thing that you use to strengthen the church. He was someone who denied Jesus and he becomes the most outspoken, a pillar in the church. He becomes that beautiful like rock and almost takes a bit of a leadership position from being one of the weakest. And I think that's such a, just a little sidebar message of hope, of just if you're battling with failure, if you're battling with weakness, you know, see it in light of, see it the way God sees it. He sees the potential of what you can be. And sometimes when we can see things the way God sees it, it gives us hope and strength to push through. And so he's given Simon Peter, he's given him a new mission, and he really cares about the quality of the disciples' souls, about their hearts. And we're just going to be looking at the account in Acts, chapter 1, and it should come up on the screen. And it's just the, the one um, account of Jesus going back to heaven. It says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them his command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. 
And so in Luke, it tells us in the Luke account, it says that they left the Mount of Olives and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Isn't that just a contrast to how they left before, with sadness, running for their lives, fear, and now they left with great joy. And it speaks about it in John chapter 16, I think, 16 or 17, that they will leave with great joy. So just once again, one of the first prophecies coming true. And then they go to the upper room and it just speaks about who was there. And then Peter initiates a process of, of choosing a replacement for Judas. And they kind of do it by drawing, drawing um, straws. And I was just thinking, this is quite a simple story. I read it over and over again. I was thinking, well, what angle do we take here? You know, it's not too many kind of events that happen. Um, but I think one of the most amazing things is to see the difference in the disciples. Now they are ready to continue the work of Jesus. They weren't a few days ago, but there's such a shift in, in, in their behavior, in their attitude, and later we'll see in their actions. And there are a few points that I just jotted down about just what really changed and, and what really seemed to sink in for them, what they started to realize. And I think the first thing is that they had been adequately taught. I don't know if you've ever felt ill-prepared for an exam or a task or a job, and um, I know mine was maths, my math metric exam. I don't know if any of you ever battled with maths, but I soldiered through, and the funny thing is, for years, and I still from time to time have it, I have this um, nightmare where I'm about to write maths, but I haven't attended matric, um, so I'm sure that was like a heart's desire that's been coming up. Um, but, but just that I hadn't attended, and now all of a sudden I have to go and write my matric maths exam, and I don't know a thing, I don't know theorems, I don't know how to work things out, and it's just this overwhelming, I wake up just feeling this fear all over again, like I was in high school, and it was many, many years ago. Um, and, and, but there's nothing worse than feeling that out of control, I'm not actually prepared for the task that I need to do. And that can just play on one's emotions so much. But right here, we actually see that the disciples have actually been taught enough. They've walked with Jesus. If you think back to every parable they would have heard, every miracle they would have seen, everything they would have been taught, even Jesus' attitudes, they would have just learned so much just from being with God come down, the creator of the universe come down, that, that they had actually received enough. And not only that, that when Jesus was, had come back, he, he actually continued in the kind of same line of thought. He carried on. Um, doing what he did. He carried on being God come down. He carried on being consistent. He carried on teaching about the kingdom of God. Verse 3 says, after his sufferings, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. So there was no doubt. They knew for certain that what they were teaching about Jesus being raised from the dead, they knew it had actually happened. It was convincing proofs. Um, and that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And this isn't a new drum that he's beating. It's not a new message. It's completely consistent. And so now the disciples have actually been around truth. They've seen truth. They've tasted it. They've touched it. They've absorbed truth. And I can only imagine if you think about how we retell stories, how I retold that story at the beginning about the cow, and just it's a story I heard years ago, but it made an impression on me. I can almost imagine the disciples taking parables and, and going and starting to teach them. And, and, you know, when they're trying to explain the kingdom of God, saying, you know, and just reteaching what they, what they heard Jesus say, the kingdom of God is like this. And, and all of a sudden, those stories that they would have heard where, where Jesus had explained the kingdom to others, they were now equipped to teach. And so they, were, they, they had enough. 
And, and Jesus actually could confidently entrust them with the task at hand. And then the next thing is that they had a great commission. So as I mentioned, the last time that they had seen him, there was this element of confusion. Where do we go from here? What should we be doing? Um, you know, should we be hiding? Kind of the self-preservation thing. Um, but Jesus, had, he'd left them with a lot of beautiful things. He'd washed their feet. He'd given them certain blessings. He'd given them comfort. But now all of a sudden, he tells them what to do. And it's quite clear instructions. He says, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. So they'd heard him speak about it. Now they know what to do. Just stay here and wait. You don't have to do anything. I've got it under control. I've taken care of it. I'm going to be leaving you, but just stay. Just wait. It's, it's all taken care of. And that beautiful comfort. And then he says, um, but you will, and, and he also turns it around and all of a sudden, and it's not that the gospel message is about them, and it's not that all of a sudden it's about the disciples, but he's entrusting the work to them. He's commissioning them. And so he uses the word you quite a lot, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. They would have been used to relying on Jesus to show up, to do the miracles, to do his thing. And now all of a sudden he's kind of handing the baton over and he's using that word you. And you will be my witnesses in, Judea, in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And what a beautiful thing of just saying, it's yours now. I'm giving you this project. And I know I, I always, my father-in-law is an artist and so he gets commissions. And so when we're speaking and we want to know how he's doing, he'll say, well, that's great. You know, I've got two commissions this month. And then you're like, yeah, you're going to eat. Um, and, but it's a good thing. You've got someone who's, who's phoning and saying, can you do this painting for me? This is what I want. They give a description of what they want. And then he does the task. And that's a commission. And so in a sense, they've been given it. They've been handed this task. Could have, they could have rejected it. Judas chose not to go the distance, um, but they've embraced it. And so they've been given this task. They've been handed the baton. And then they were also completely empowered. That beautiful verse, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And the Greek preposition there is epi. It just starts, it's like a, it's a, it's a small word with big meaning because it's a new relationship with the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 14, these are the words that are used for the Holy Spirit. It says in um, chapter 14, verse 17, The Spirit of the truth, the world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. So that so far has been their promise of the Holy Spirit, in you and with you. All of a sudden, there's a, new, there's a new kind of preposition that's used. And in the, in the New Testament, it's translated in a few different ways, but they're all beautiful. It's upon or over or an overflow. And isn't it such a beautiful picture of just the Holy Spirit is just going to be overflowing. He's going to be on you. He's with you. It's almost like this fireball of giving, fueling them um, for the task at hand. So now the Holy Spirit is with you. He's in you. He's over you. You have God with you. You have his authority. And just what a beautiful comfort that would have been. How could they not feel empowered? Like that was what God was using to make sure the gospel gets flung into the future, that this message of the kingdom goes further than just that room. And then also their future is secured. And if you, if you look at the word witness, 
we, we almost um, kind of under underuse the word we, we kind of take away from the power if you think about it if you've witnessed a car accident you might get asked to go to court and speak about what you've heard and you can decide if you're going to share that or not um, your perspective you kind of see it as your truth because another witness might come and give another perspective and that is being a witness but there's so much more to it in the bible and the, the root word is actually the, the same word as martyr and there's a difference between being a witness. Oh, I saw this happen and, you know, it was a great day and then someone else shares what they saw and you'll just put it together and talk about the day and reminisce. It wasn't that. Being a martyr, being a witness in that way is something that you'll live for. It's something that you'll proclaim. It was something that you'll die for. And if you look at how the disciples, um, how they all died, and, and if you try and trace, trace it, there's some that are a little bit sketchy, um, but it's agreed upon that mostly that, that 11 of the 12 actually all were martyred for what they believed and and John was the only one who wasn't but isn't it amazing how they they kind of went out they spread out they didn't just stick together in their little 12 huddle keep each other safe and secure and happy and reinforce what the others believed they had this new power to be a martyr to be a witness so much so that now they're willing to put their life on the line they were willing to live for it and they were willing to die for it and I was thinking through, well, what has changed? What changed in like a few days that, that they went into self-preservation mode and now they're willing to lay their lives down? And a lot changed, I think. Um, you know, you could say, well, it was part of God's plan because the cross was a very lonely thing for Jesus and it was a road he was always going to walk alone. But there's a transformation that happens with them, that they've seen Jesus, they've lived with him. They've seen his death, they've seen his burial, they've seen his resurrection, they're seeing his ascension and they will receive the Holy Spirit to confirm this all as truth, to give them the power to help them to see the reality, to start joining the dots. Last week I used the, the eye test illustration of just how, you know, things seem to get quite hazy towards the, the last few lines, but, but everything's coming clearly now. It's like the top line sort of stuff. It's all starting to sink in. And they are just overwhelmingly convinced that this is truth. The other thing I was wondering is why, why replace Judas? Their disciple, their disciples, their master is gone. You know, they're not going to be this little merry clan walking around following Jesus anymore. What's the importance of replacing Judas? But I think they see the significance of the work that is being entrusted to them. That, that, that God had actually placed people and that Jesus was there to teach them that there was a plan for these 12 to go and change the world and they kind of got it and so they weren't just seeing it as a token replacement of a shame we lonely we need a 12th person it was so much more than that someone needs to come and be part of this team we need to go and change the world so it's a very significant thing they saw their job as continuing the work of Jesus and in John 14, um, verse 12, it says this, these words, Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they'll do even greater things than these, because I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. And what a beautiful thing of, of just saying, you know, now it's your job and, and even greater. Don't, don't worry about not having me round. Things are going to get even better. But the important thing is so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And I was thinking, and as I was preparing, I think the thing that kept on coming back to me and just 
It's that time to kind of switch things around from the disciples' perspective to ours and hold a mirror up against us. And um, I kept on thinking about our church's vision, continuing the work of Jesus. If you're a member of the church, if you see this as your home, that is our vision. That is what we're all about. And that is just, if you go onto our website, if you can't see it too clearly, um, you'll, you can see it on our website. But what our logo, it actually just sums up everything that the disciples had been taught, what they had been entrusted with, um, and, and what they were told to do. And so if you think about us as a church, we've been adequately taught. We have everything we need for life and godliness. We have God's word. We have the great commission that it is for us too. We need to go into all the world. Um, we have been completely empowered. The same Holy Spirit that the di disciples have, we have. Um, and our future is secured. We know how it's going to end. We don't need to fear the future because we know that our hands are in, in the hands of God. And if you look at our logo, we just we have a few elements. We, we have the whole mandate to go and make disciples. And that's why that arrow is there. It's just going like, go and make disciples. It's something that needs to happen continually. It's this great instruction for all of us, for all believers, not actually just for, for Connect Church. But it's, the arrow is all about continuing the work of Jesus, just carrying on. And then we have the squares. And the first one represents being a spiritual people. That is what the disciples were. Um, People becoming followers of Jesus, that is what we've called to do, and be a kingdom community, be all about building God's kingdom. What a beautiful vision. And sometimes we just see it as a mission statement, like you might see at school or work or wherever you are, you know, we are here to do this and this and this. But this is not. This is something that we actually need to orientate our lives to. Um, it's a huge calling. I'll just show you our kids' ministry one, because I actually think if it's there... You'll, it will help you to remember it a bit more. I always used to battle to remember. And if you see in the top one, it's a wave. And the wave represents the spiritual community, the Holy Spirit. And then the next one's a fish, if you can make it out. And that's, you know, the whole thing of becoming fishers of men, followers of Jesus. And we've just used it to explain it to the kids. And then the last one's a little castle, and that's a kingdom community. So that actually helps me to remember if you're battling and you're a visual learner like me. Um, that will help you to remember what we're all about um, but as I said, it's not just a mission statement. It's a story that should govern our lives. It's something that we should orientate our lives towards. No matter what you do in the week, no matter what you're about, this is what should be directing your life course, your vision. If you know and love God, it's not just a slogan. But I just thought we have two very real forces pulling at our lives. We have the Midderidge Connect vision, and we have the Midderidge vision. And I've been speaking about it a lot as, with my friends of just... How do you balance living in this community? I remember when I first moved here, people said, you know, this is a beautiful place to, to live and raise kids. And people move here for the schools and the churches and the facilities, the sports facilities and what's on offer. And I thought, wow, I've, I've come to paradise. This is the place that I need to be in. And, and soon I realized that this is a false sense of, of security. It pulls on people's hearts. It puts pressure on them. I think I spoke about it last week of just that, that unrealistic pressure of, of what you're striving for, the Meadowridge dream, the Constantia Valley dream. I don't know if you've ever spotted in the news just the kind of highs and lows that happen in this area. Some very dark things happen in this area because people are trying to achieve this dream. They're trying to live and attain a certain goal. And often it involves having to do the right things, have the right job, have the right cars, have the right house, have the right everything. And it's putting this pressure on people. And we as a church don't reject it. We actually have secretly bought into it. 
And so you need to ask yourself, what is the dream for your life? Which one is actually making a greater impact on you? Which one are you orientating your life towards? Are you like the disciples, willing to put your life on the line and say, I'm going to be a witness in the true sense of the word, no matter what it takes? And as we end, I just, I remember also years ago hearing, and I don't think this is true, uh, I mean, it's not true, but someone was speaking about the only tears in heaven will be when you see what your life could have been. And there's no theology behind that or no verse in the Bible, I don't think, um, that indicates that. But imagine if, if God showed you what your plan, his plan A was for your life. Imagine if you actually could have seen the people that you encountered who might not be with you in heaven one day because you weren't passionate enough to be a witness, a martyr, to, to actually maybe look a little bit foolish. And just think of those faces, and I can think of faces of people that I haven't chosen to share the gospel with because it's inconvenient, it can be embarrassing, it can be tough. It's, so we go into self-preservation mode when it comes to the gospel. Well, I've got it, and I know where I'm going. The disciples weren't about that. They went into the world, and they went and changed the world. And so my question to you is, what do you orientate your life by? What is your life goal? What will your life look like in 10 years' time? And so many Christians are very intentional with a 10-year goal, a 5-year goal for their life when it comes to professional life, sports, career, everything. But we're not intentional with what we want God to do, where we want, what do we want our lives to look like before Him. And that is the most important thing, and it shows that our eyes have actually been blinded to the reality of what God wants to do. And I'm just going to end with the scripture from Matthew 16. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be if someone gains the whole world yet forfeits their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? There's a beautiful promise in there. It's a very heavy verse. It's hard to read. It's hard to swallow for all of us. But that promise for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. If you really want to find your life, maybe you're feeling like you're floundering. Maybe you feel lost. Maybe you feel like the disciples before they knew that Jesus was resurrected. That, that kind of transition stage of doubting. Is this true? That maybe we just need to lose our lives a little bit more so that we can find it in him. And where are you going to be found when Jesus comes looking for you? Are you going to be found in him? Have you made that decision to be completely sold out for him? You're with everything, not holding anything back. And so that is our challenge. And if you feel like you need prayer into that, um, when the worship team comes up, there'll just be a song playing and you can come up and you can, you can just have prayer. You can pray with any of your friends. But just, I think it's so important for us to make those decisions. And... And it's just don't harden your heart to what God is wanting to say. Take that step of obedience. Take that step of faith. Maybe you don't even feel it in your heart yet. But what, I, what I've said, what the scriptures that we've looked at just make so much sense. That we shouldn't be holding anything back from him. That this is what we should be setting our lives towards. This is our true north. Um, and we should be orientating our lives to Jesus. So I'm just going to pray for us. And if I can ask the worship team to come up and just to pray for boldness and also just for God to help us to make sense of these teachings. I think that's what started to happen to all the disciples. And I've said it a few times here. They started to connect the dots. Things started to make sense. And I just pray that things will start to make sense for us as well. So Lord, I just pray that you'll come and minister to our hearts. 
Lord, we don't want our hearts to be hard to you. We want to answer to what your Holy Spirit is saying. We thank you for your loving kindness that draws us in. We thank you for the example that we saw when you cared for the disciples so much. You cared for their hearts. And we thank you that you care for our hearts. Thank you that you love us intimately. And that we can love you because you first loved us. But Lord, we don't want to be selfish with what you've entrusted to us. We want to, we want to love you with passion, but we want to continue your work. We see that this is a task that you've entrusted to us, like you've entrusted it to the disciples. And Lord, we don't want to be an apathetic church that gets more um, changed by the world than we do by your word. So just purify us with your word. Speak to us, Lord. If anyone needs to make a bold decision to follow you or to recommit their lives to you, Lord, I pray that they'll just have the, the strength to do that, Father. We thank you that when we lose our lives, we actually find it new. That your kingdom looks so different to the way the world does. Lord, that we don't lose ourselves, that we find, we find our life in you. Lord, may we be found in you. Amen. So I've asked Tammy just to play. I really feel like such a powerful word.